Hi, this is Lucy Arnaz. You're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you back to TV Confidential Radio Talk Show about television that will take you back to the 1980s and the early days of music television as we welcome award-winning record producer, songwriter, music manager, um, author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker, Simon Napier-Bell. Simon has managed such artists as diverse as Jeff Beck and the Yardbirds, John's Children, Sinead O'Connor, and Wham! Wham! of course being the band that first introduced the world to George Michael. Simon not only helped establish Wham! as a global act, but was the driving force behind their groundbreaking Beijing concert, the first visit to China by a Western popular music act, and a true event that generated worldwide media coverage. As a result, Simon got to know George Michael very, very well. He got to know him like few people did, and he brings that insight to an excellent documentary called The Real George Michael that we'll tell you more about in just a second. Simon Napier-Bell, welcome to TV Confidential. Hi, Ed. Um, excuse my sore throat. That's not a magnificent build-up. I'm not sure I deserve all that. <laughs> <laughs> but I never mind hearing it, so off we go. I would like to start by sharing like two or three takeaways I got as a viewer after watching your film. And uh, I'm going to ask you to stay with me on this first one for just a bit. I've written two books on the career of James Garner. And there were several moments when I watched the real George Michael where what I learned about George reminded me of what I've come to know about James Garner. One, they were both hugely talented public figures who sought fame and yet they both struggled with the loss of anonymity that comes with being famous so they're always living with that contradiction throughout their life and the real connection or the real parallel that I got especially in the second half of your film both George Michael and James Garner were not afraid to speak out on principle against the very system that made them wealthy and famous even if their public image took a hit they weren't afraid to fight on principle if they knew or if they felt something was wrong and Garner did that, of course, when he sued Warner Brothers and Universal. George did that not only when he took on Sony, uh, but also later on when he took on Rupert Murdoch. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my original title for this film, and it wasn't really going to be about George only, it's going to be about George, about George and two other artists, uh, was the artist versus the music industry versus himself. And, you know... Uh, Traditionally, the idea of an artist is he doesn't care about anything. He would go in the attic and just paint paintings, put them aside and paint some more for his own satisfaction. That may still be true of a certain type of artist, but a music artist, uh, really nearly every single music artist, and I say nearly only so I don't sound pedantic, but my experience has been every single major music artist has become one because sometime in their childhood, they didn't get some love they needed from someone they needed it the most from at the moment they needed it most. And this turns them inwards in an extraordinary way, and they're desperate to turn themselves into something else. They usually end up going off to their bedroom and standing in front of the mirror trying to invent a new personality, and then looking for love, love of an audience, uh, affection, and respect from people. And... To do this, they need the music industry, as it is, with all its faults. 
And so they're drawn to something which they're very, most of these people are very principled because of what they've suffered. They, they develop these ideas about you know, how humans should behave for each other. So they're drawn to the very thing which seems to do to them um, what they dislike most, <laughs> which, is to use, which is to use them. Now, I think that's probably the human condition and probably what happens with all of us. And so they are fighting the industry which they need and want and in many ways love because they, you know, I'm sure James Gunn is the same as George. They've watched all their lives, all the stars they respect go through this, mm -hmm. and they love seeing their fame and they want that same thing. And they're also fighting themselves because, you know, any normal person doesn't become, and being an artist is horrible, being famous is horrible. It's mm -hmm. a miserable life. You can't go for a walk, you can't go to the supermarket, you can't go sit in a restaurant. And so they're fighting themselves for wanting this stupid thing which takes away a normal life from them. Mm -hmm. So they're a bundle of conflicts, that's what we're saying. And they're usually very principled, but in another way, they're completely unprincipled because a real artist wouldn't compromise with this horrific industry. Yeah. And when I say horrific, it's not horrific, it's just capitalism. Yeah. You, you, you must not think the music industry is there because it loves music, it's there because it loves money. Mm -hmm. It's there to make money. Mm -hmm. If you love music, you don't need to sell the records, you just play them, listen to them, don't even make them to start with. So that's the conflict every artist goes through. And the similarities between all artists are, are amazing. I mean, I've managed five or six absolutely major artists. You could take away the top 10% and the rest is exactly the same. The thing which drove them, the thing which made them become an artist, the personality, the, uh, the, this sort of conflicting personality they have, they're very similar people. They're damaged people. I mean, they're damaged. That's what the industry depends on mentally damaged people. Art is the symptom of a bad mental condition. That's it's, it's not some wonderful, glorious thing we arrive at because the angels sing. <laughs> uh, the art is what the artist produces to try to get rid of the terrible feeling he has inside of, of hurt and pain. It's a symptom. It, when you see a piece of art, you should say, you need to go once to a psychiatrist. But if they go to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist is successful, there'll be no more art. And so mostly they don't want to go. And the record industry doesn't want them to go either. But in some cases, there are artists who, like George Michael, who were, for lack of a better word, they were blessed with an uncanny sixth sense to adapt to the situation. Early in his career, when he realized he wasn't making money off the, uh, the, the original records from Wham! because the guy who wrote the contract was a little shrewder than he was, but George realized, okay, Let's well, let's you know, take this on the there's road. A, there's your compromise with yeah. you. You know how far do you compromise? You know, you you fancy this beautiful lady, but she wants to beat you, <laughs> and you say, "Smack me on the bum," which she does, and then she gets the knife out and says, "Cutty, that's going too far." Well, you know, you are compromising. You can smack you on the bum. No, she can't cut you. Whenever you compromise, you then have a second decision. How far do you compromise? He wants the industry. He wants to be famous. Then once he's famous, he did want the money which went with it too, and the that first record contract, which Wham signs as 18-year-old boys, was a very, very bad contract. And it had in it this clause which said the artist would not be paid on 12-inch singles. It sounds like a tiny little, well, it was a tiny little clause slipped in round page 57 between two other innocuous things. But in 1985, 1986, in the UK, the best-selling records were 12-inch singles. These were big. Mm -hmm. uh, there were 12-inch versions. They, were, they ran for about five minutes. There were longer versions of the current hit songs, usually dance songs, pressed in colored vinyl with pictures and things. 
they sold for a lot of money. They sold for as much as an album, but were just a single, and slipped there in the contract because they wouldn't get royalties on them. And that's what they sold. They were selling millions and millions of these 12-inch singles. So it's a tricky, silly thing to have in a contract, and it caused him to, and Andrew, uh, to decide they just had to fight to get out of it. <laughs> they got out of it and then signed to CBS, who, of course, devised the contract that they'd given them in the first place because the, the company they'd signed to was a subsidiary of CBS, financed by CBS, called Innovision, run by a guy down the road they met who'd seen their talents and signed them up. You know, but the wicked thing about the industry was that CBS had, if you like, signed up this young guy down the road and given him a company to find new young artists. And this was one of the contracts they'd given him and suggested he signed his artist to. So the, the contract they fought to get out of so they could sign with CBS was a CBS contract in the first place. So that's how your beautiful music industry runs. Joining us via Zoom is Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, songwriter, music manager, including the manager for Wham!, the boy band that put George Michael on the map. Simon is also the director of The Real George Michael, an excellent documentary that takes a deep dive into the life and career of the legendary Grammy Award winner and shows us who George Michael really was, a kind and generous individual who ultimately fought many demons while being front and center as one of the most famous musicians of his time. The real George Michael, available now, viewing on demand, Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing, and if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and Moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U beauty.com or at Ibu Beauty on Instagram. Use customer code Ibu50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. I'm going to ask you how you first became aware of George Michael and Wham just a second. But first, I want to circle back to something you said. You said you originally sought to make a different documentary. It's going to be a documentary about three individuals. That speaks to the fluidity of the documentary form. You know, it's, it's not like... Well, well the, the concept, as I said, was the artist versus the music industry versus himself. The point was, all three artists, whichever three I picked, uh, it was the same story. Yeah. They didn't, you, didn't, you didn't really need three. But what three does, it reinforces the story more, uh, makes the three-part series to sell instead of a one-part. Sure. Just good, good film industry business. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and would introduce a lot of surface elements, which would be very interesting and fascinating. Because in the end, that basic conundrum is there for all artists, and it's the surface things which make one documentary different from another. But they would have, would have been the same story, and effectively are for all artists. So in the end, for the sake of finance, we narrowed it down to one artist, just a, a one documentary, uh, which became George. Uh, how I first met them? Well, uh, we, have, we had then in the UK a program called Top of the Pops, which was the absolute number one way of promoting artists, mm -hmm. popular music artists in the UK. And it had a 16 million audience of teenagers. That is virtually every teenager in the UK. It'd be as if 120 million people watched the same program at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was sort of the British equivalent of, say, American Bandstand, a show like that. I'm times 23. Yeah, 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 because it, cause, cause it, was prime, it was prime time versus Saturday morning. 
Yeah, I mean, as I said, if you, if you imagine every teenager in America, and of course the teenagers in America will be far more diverse culturally than they will be in the UK, so that, that it wouldn't happen anyway. But although to some degree it brought the different cultures together. Um, they were on this program, and I watched this program regularly because anyone in the music industry sort of had to. It was, mm -hmm. it was part of your, mm -hmm. your, your, your weekly necessary viewing. And they came on the first time I'd ever been on, and they were fantastic. They were amazing. I'd watched this program for... 20 years, 25 years, and I've never seen a debut act perform so well with such panache and such confidence and such knowledge of how television worked. And of course, they had, in the optimistic hope they would one day get this program, they had rehearsed and rehearsed and thought about it, how they'd perform, and they delivered a performance which they'd rehearsed thousands of times in their bedroom, thought through in their minds. Uh, and did it just meticulously, and it was extraordinary. And I think the whole of England was talking the next day about this duo who came on and performed. I mean, it was quite a, quite a sort of um, naive performance in the sense that it looked like kids performing in the bedroom in front of a mirror, uh, and they did that deliberately. I mean, this, this was something that worked out. We don't want to look like, you know, Hollywood professionals. Mm -hmm. But they did that amateur act with such professionalism that it was obviously not just an amateur act. They'd obviously worked on it. And it was impressive. I think anyone in the music industry was immediately impressed, including me. And I had a partner at the time called Jazz Summers, who was also another manager. We were we decided together to come together and find a new act to manage. But when I said you, I meant you for us. We didn't want to take a beginner act because you waste two or three years getting them their first hit or not. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we wanted to take an act which had a first hit and we could then take them to make them world beaters. And this was the act. We knew immediately this this was a fantastic act. We needed to get hold of them. And so we called around and found out how to get in touch with them. And they had already had a publishing deal. And we knew their publishers quite well. And we persuaded them to come and see us. And what was fascinating was when you saw them on television, they were a couple of twins. The song was Young Guns and George and Andrew danced like there were two, two young lads around town, out of a town you know, looking for the girls, and they had the girls there in the video with them, um, and getting a bit drunk and having fun. That that was a wonderful sort of, the, the bromance image they projected, <laughs> Starsky and Hutch, Butch Cassidy, the yes, Sundance yes. Kid. It was the great, the great two straight guys having a lovely time. Uh, they went for the girls, but they enjoyed each other's company even more. It was a classic Hollywood image, brilliantly portrayed. And so they were like a couple of twins. But then when they came into my flat and sat down, they were absolute opposites. They were nothing like each other at all. Andrew was that image. Andrew was exactly what we'd seen. And we realized that what we'd been looking at was a real Andrew and a fake Andrew. And George had, had, had copied Andrew, learned how to project that image. And in fact, was totally different. He was matter of fact and careful and cautious uh, and mistrustful and uh, wanted to learn about the industry. And the first thing he said, if you want to manage us, tell me who you've managed before. Oh, Tell me what you've done for them. How did you, what would you do for us? You, know, you won't be looking after our money. We'll be getting accountants. No, we'll be getting two sets of accountants. I said, what do you want two sets for? So one can keep the eye on the other one. It was, you know, he was, he was absolutely, he thought through him ahead of time. Yeah. All the things which could go wrong with the music industry and what he needed or what they needed. So I thought this was genius because you had this perfect act. So you couldn't have a better image, but you had behind that act, both extremes which you need in, a, in a, an act, knowledge of the industry on George's side and knowledge of how to project a, an image from Andrew. But just a brilliant duo. 
And I thought of this as I was watching the footage of that debut performance of, of Wham! on Top of the Pops, Simon, is that George in particular had a sense of, I mean, you know, once upon a time, if you're a singer, if you're an artist and you wanted a, a hit record, it basically, can you carry a tune? Is it a well-produced and is it, is it the type of song that will play on the radio and maybe sell 45s? But what George had a sense of is the whole package, the visual, the presentation, creating an event. And this is like 25 years before shows like American Idol made the rest of the George, world. George, George and, and, this, and Andrew too, largely. Largely, George, uh, were obsessed with with music, and they, that's what the, their relationship at school had been based on music. Every day, they talked about what songs they like, what groups they like. They listened to music. Uh, they were very up with it. George went beyond that. George is hugely analytical and looked at the music industry. He he really had worked out how it worked and how people got where they were, what you needed to do, what compromises need to be made, what compromises the industry needs to make in order to make him successful. He really had worked it out. It was a complete package in his mind which had to be done. I mean, anyone who comes in the industry who's intelligent quickly learns that, but they learn it once they're there. And so what he had done, he came in with that knowledge already in his mind. So he was like, he behaved at the beginning like an artist who'd been a hit artist already for a year or two. Uh, and that's that's what jumped them up immediately, because this, this enormous, quick, huge stardom. It, he had this very, very analytical, uh, cautious and uh, cynical, I suppose is the word, but he didn't like that word. But anyway, uh, realistic attitude yeah. to what the industry was and how it functioned. Joining us via Zoom is Simon Napier-Bell. Simon Napier-Bell legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, documentary filmmaker, Simon's latest film, The Real George Michael, is a candid look at the life and career of the illustrious Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, activist, and philanthropist, all told by the people who knew George Michael best, including his longtime lover and partner, Kenny Goss, fellow luminaries, Stevie Wonder, Rufus Wainwright, Stephen Fry, The Real George Michael, available now for viewing on demand, Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. Here's one of my other takeaways from, from watching your film, uh, Simon. Um, one of the revelations is George's quiet philanthropy. Both Stephen Fry and the CEO, I think, the, I think it was Real Angel Foods, I forget the guy's name, but both Stephen Fry and that CEO are just two examples of the many instances of George's generosity to charitable organizations without seeking any kind of attention for it. In that respect, he reminds me of another quiet philanthropist that I believe you got to know because you made a film about him, Frank Sinatra. Well, you know, um, part of good manners, we're taught when we're young, certainly in Britain, but I've expected Americans. <laughs> you're, you're taught that you don't boast about doing good for people. Yeah. You do good because it's instinctively and sensibly a thing human beings should do to each other. And that's a very, very strong thing where talk is good British manners. I imagine it's exactly the same in America. Mm -hmm. In the last 15 or 20 years, this has almost completely been thrown away. Look, 15, 20, probably the last 50 years, it's always been thrown away on both sides of the Atlantic. In Britain, for one thing, the best way to become a, a lord in the House of Lords, which jumps you to the heights of the height of politics without ever having to do, done the battle previously, is to give huge amounts of money to charities. So nearly everyone who gets made a lord these days is somebody who's donated or created large amounts of money for charity. 
and occasionally putting your name to creating the money for charity or getting money for charity is what helps get it, like Elton with the Elton John's Foundation, which has created millions, nearly billions of money for AIDS. That's a different matter. I and mean, that, that's, that's being very charitable and giving your name to charity. Mm -hmm. But the other sort of thing is to, just to give your money to charity. And we were all taught when we were young, it was very, you, know, you don't boast about it. You don't boast about doing good things. And George felt that very strongly. He was a, he was a very moral person. He thought, you know, you can't, can't go around saying I'm a good person because I give money to charity. And sort of the traditional judo-Christian ethic is you give money to charity because you're probably a bad person in this world. <laughs> and it's very Islamic. You, you, you solve your badness by giving some money to charity. Yeah. So there was probably all those elements in him. He was a, quite a conflicting person. Yeah. He, probably, he probably felt slightly guilty that he had so much money because after all, he just wrote songs and he loved writing songs. And other people who loved doing what they did and did what they loved got nothing for it. I mean, it was just a bit of luck. He'd fallen into this industry. He had more money than he needed because we all, you know, anyone in the music industry who's successful, you, you, what, if you've got a million pounds, what do you need 10 million for? What do you need 80,000? Well, you, a billion is beyond comprehension what you need that for. And George felt that very strongly. And so he thought, I don't need all this money. And so he gave as much as he could away. And to the horror of all the people around him, uh, first the, you know, his management, who's, their job is to protect and secure. And I was, had to say to him and his subsequent managers, be careful, because one day you may not write another hit song. Yeah. You may suddenly find you dry up and you've got used to living at a certain level, what looks like a lot of money. You know, if you were a star, it isn't difficult at all to spend a million a year or five million a year on your Hollywood mansion and your second home somewhere else and the flat in New York and the flat in New York and, and all those things, that money goes out very easily. And if you suddenly don't create any hits, it's very difficult to cut down on the, on the way you live and the money drains out. So we all should be careful. He wasn't a careful person. And the family and the people who he supported, they all probably warned him, don't give too much away because you know, they wanted to be sure there was still some coming in for him. So probably in the face of a lot of people saying, be careful you know, how much you give away, he gave away almost everything he had. I mean, on the song Last Christmas, which is probably the biggest grossing song of all his songs, mm -hmm. fantastic, still gets the number one year after year on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, he gave away all those royalties, everything, to uh, the Ethiopian fund, starving kids in those days, uh, on his, I think, what was his best-selling album, which was his greatest hits album, mm -hmm. Ladies and Gentlemen, mm -hmm. He gave away the entire British royalties to uh, the, the Terence Higgins Trust, which is the one Stephen Fry talked about in the film, which is a, um, a trust helping AIDS patients. That would be 20 or 25 million pounds, 35 million dollars. This is no small amount to give away. Mm -hmm. And he used to love, in his later life, sitting and watching television, breakfast television or morning television, and if he saw someone, um, you know, was on the program said, oh, my wife needs an operation and we can't afford it, or, you know, I've just lost my glasses and I can't see properly, I can't afford new ones. He'd love just calling up the television station and saying, can you tell that guy, it's paid for, done. You can have the money. The only condition is, don't use my name. Yeah. And he enjoyed doing it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot to be said for charity that charitable people are only doing what they enjoy, just the same as mean people are by putting it in the bank. But, you know... <laughs> Um, so is it really charity if you're only doing what you enjoy? Well, that's a, an, 
a philosophical question, but it was a wonderful thing to do. Simon Napier-Bell is the director of The Real George Michael, new documentary available for viewing on demand on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms. We'll talk some more with Simon after this quick timeout here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.